we stand today. The Business Method with the Shadow. The Business Method. The Business Method Podcast. The Business Method Podcast featuring Chris Reynolds. Entrepreneurs, systems, methods, tools, and tactics for location independence. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, I'm your host, Chris Reynolds, and welcome to the Business Method Podcast, a podcast featuring successful entrepreneurs and high-profile people dissecting their business models. We dissect the different methods, tools, and tactics of high-performance online entrepreneurs and high-caliber people in a series format. On our first series, we interviewed 100 entrepreneurs in 100 days that have built businesses creating $100,000 or more annually. On our second series, we interviewed 100 entrepreneurs that have built location-independent businesses that produce over a million dollars in annual revenue and now we're interviewing 100 major influencers to get behind the minds and the science of using influence to grow business and influence income results economies and cultures there's a growing number of people building these caliber of businesses like this and we're going to figure out what it takes to make this happen now let's jump in today's show the business method Hey listeners, welcome back to the show. Today's guest is Michael Ventura, the CEO and founder of Subrosa, a strategy and design firm that has worked with some of the world's largest and most important brands from Johnson & Johnson, Adobe, the TED Conference, Delta Airlines, and The Daily Show. Ventura has served as a board member and advisor to various organizations, including the Burning Man Project and the UN's Tribal Link Foundation. He is also a visiting lecturer at Princeton University in the United States Military Academy at West Point. In addition to this, Michael is the author of Applied Empathy. Today on the show, we get behind the mind of Michael in creating Subrosa and how they implement design practice and strategies for companies around the world. Part of the culture in Subrosa and all of Michael's companies is the idea of applied empathy. Throughout the show, we get a chat with Michael on how using applied empathy can make massive change in your business. Without further ado, Michael Ventura. Entrepreneurs, systems, methods, tools, and tactics. Ladies and gentlemen and listeners, welcome back to the show. And we want to proudly welcome Michael Ventura to the podcast. Michael, how are you today? I'm doing fine. Thanks for having me. And Michael, we've got to ask real quick, where are you calling from? I'm in New York City. New York. How's the weather right now in New York? Uh, we had a very sunny, warm tease of a weekend, and now we are back to the winter as of today. <laughs> oh, cool. Well, I'm down in Rio de Janeiro, and Noah is in... Noah, are you in Barcelona now? Yes, I am. Yes, so we've got a very international call going, so it's good to, to get you on the line. Are you normally based in New York? Yeah, this is home. Very cool. We were excited to get you on the show because we've been interviewing these influencers over the past 20 or 30 podcasts and really getting behind um, the minds of people that have a significant influence and they're using that to create great things in the world. Because we know there's a lot of influencers that are uh, could be quote unquote considered sloppy with their influence and just use it to represent things like uh, the fire festival or something like that. And, <laughs> and you didn't represent, you didn't promote the fire festival, did you? <laughs> nope. That wasn't me. <laughs> okay, cool. So we're excited to have you on the show. And I think what we're going to do is just give you the mic for a couple sec, couple minutes. So the listeners can kind of get to know you from uh, your background and where you got started. So if you don't mind, we'll just give you the mic and, and you can tell, tell us what you think the listeners and the audience would want to hear. Sure. 
16 years ago. I uh, started my first business then. It was in that post dot com bubble bursting moment where uh, the reality of digital started to set in for people. The, the the, the, the needs of organizations to use digital and social media as a means to connecting with consumers was important. And we were those young punk kids who knew how to play in that space, but had still grown up in an analog uh, way. And we were kind of this translator, right? We played a role that we understood digital, but we also understood what it meant to not live in a digital world. And so we had this unique perspective that brands found interesting. And so we started to get pulled into organizations to help them think about that. And 16 years later, this business still continues. It's gone through a couple different brand names. It's con gone through some partnerships and some acquisitions and some, um, you know, whole host of different things. But I have, uh, I've been the steady state throughout. Um, Amidst that, I've also launched a few other businesses, uh, one with my wife, which is an interiors business, uh, specifically focused on sourcing uh, different sorts of objects and design products from around the world and selling them. Um, I run an alternative medicine practice uh, where I treat about 15 people a week in private practice. Uh, and then the primary business is, is called Sub Rosa. And that is, that is the thing I've been doing for the past 16 years, which is to really help organizations use uh, a design thinking approach that we developed called applied empathy to help them think about how to use perspective taking and how to use cognitive empathy in a way that helps you improve your leadership style, your relationships with your consumers, and ultimately the, the profitability of your business. And we also know that, that you have the book called Applied Empathy too, which is a big part of your, your, your business and, and the practice you use in your business. But I want to talk about real quick, um, as a designer, um, when I started as an entrepreneur, I had no idea about the importance of design and the importance of using this practice, um, in your business or branding or any of that. So could you, could you describe a little bit more about, um, what you're doing with the businesses that you're working with and the importance of having design and, and branding as a key, key asset to the business? Yeah, for sure. So for us, design is a tool for communication. And so when we're saying design, that might mean something as obvious as branding or visual ID, ID of some kind, you know, graphics, logos, um, advertising campaigns, things like that. But we also look at design from a systems perspective as well. We look at the way we're designing our organizations and actually org design is a big part of the work we do where we'll go in and look at how teams are structured, how relationships are structured, how people are compensated, what their performance evaluation systems might look like, all sorts of things like that, that ultimately with good design, encourage the right behaviors in people and bad design actually uh, you know, can, can lead you astray. The other thing that's related to that is how we take design into user experience, how we take it into not just like a digital experience, but also how we take it into retail design, how we take it into uh, how people walk in and out of the buildings they, they work at every day, all sorts of different things like that. So design really plays a multifaceted role if we want it to be effective inside organizations. Is this something that you always I mean, you've, you've been, you've had this business for 16 years is, was design something that you always knew that you wanted to be a part of? Were you just natural at it? 
I think we always knew we wanted to have uh, have it play a major role in the business. Um, being natural at it, I would say, is is something I would hesitate to say yes to because there's an aspect of that that I would say yes to, which is that I think I've always appreciated its importance and uh, and the role it has to play in an organization. But my specific sort of tactical capability maxes out at a certain point. So uh, as we started to build the business, one of the things that we wanted to do was really surround ourselves with experts and people who understood how to use design from a two-dimensional communication standpoint, from a three-dimensional and spatial standpoint, from a uh, metaphorical standpoint, uh, and really have a group of thought leaders inside this organization who can do all sorts of design thinking that helps to improve the, the businesses we serve. One of the questions that I always, how, like how, how, what is, what is the, the, the ingredients if I can call them, that, uh, that made you being able not to succeed only in, in one area, but in a, in a couple of areas. I mean, you have this, this practice of alternative medicines, which you have to read and, and, and know a lot about health and alternative medicine before giving advice. You have Subrosa, which is like a successful company. You have your podcast, you're writing a, a book, which takes also time. That's, uh, people always underestimate how much time goes into writing a book. And and uh, and I heard also you have other different projects like with uh, with Burning Man as an advisor. How, how like what what do you think that in your case are uh, were the the ingredients to to get you uh, successful in 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 these couple of areas? Because it's already difficult to be successful in one area. How do you do that? What's your secret? <laughs> um, I I think that there are a couple ways I think about it. The first is recognizing when to spend the right amount of time on the right thing. So that doesn't happen easily. And sometimes you have to reprioritize as you go. But for example, when I was writing the book, there were certain things I changed with my life and changed with my schedule that made it easier to get that accomplished. So for example, every Friday, I uh, took no meetings and basically converted every Friday to a writing day. And if that writing day went well and I finished Friday and felt like I was saying the right things in the book and it was, it was, I was on, I was in my flow, um, then I would use the weekend to continue writing. If on Friday I looked at everything I wrote and I said, this is all trash and I don't like it. Um, then I would stop and I would wait till the following Friday. And so I had a, I had a structure that allowed me to put, focus on it, but also to not try hard to push a, mount, a rock up the mountain if it wasn't the right time to do it, right? So there was some structure, but also some flexibility. And I think that's always been a key for me in thinking about how to prioritize my time and make sure I get the most, most out of things. Okay. Um, the the other, other thing I would add is, um, you know, as I think about all of the different things you just listed, the there was a point in my career where it sounded like when I described myself to someone like I just did at the beginning of this podcast, it sounds like I do a million different things. And I had a teacher at the time, he was a spiritual teacher. And he said, if you zoomed way out and you looked at all of these things that sound very different when you describe them, alternative medicine, consulting, your writing, you know, all of these things, if you zoom out, and you look down from high enough, it's going to just look like one thing once you get far enough away. So go far enough away 
that you can figure out what that one thing is. And so I did. And what I came to was that in all of these things that I do, it was the use of empathy to help people work through problems and progress in their efforts. And so I realized all of these jobs are actually the same job. They just have different, different ways of manifesting. So it's, 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 it's just the point of view how these jobs manifest and it's structured focus, if I will uh, summarize it uh, for our audience. Yeah, I would agree. Okay. And, and, um, uh, and on another like, question that really uh, got me questions when I uh, uh, read uh, your book is, you seem like a nice guy. I heard from a lot of people that you are also a nice guy. Uh, <laughs> That's nice to know. <laughs> yes, uh, but like you are, well, you are from New York. In New York, you know, you, like it's it's full power on. Uh, everyone is a high achiever. You know, people there they have no fear. They have they they, they can be stressful, but it's like all we're gonna go uh, getting it or or die trying it. So so how 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 a lot of, a lot of times empathy as an entrepreneur being empathetic empathetic and 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 being nice that's kind of uh, confused sometimes uh, can you tell us a bit how a high achiever entrepreneur can still be high achiever and focused and 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 still have that empathy yeah for sure so empathy does get misconstrued very often and people hear it and they think empathy equals being nice and <clears throat> Empathy is not about being nice. It's not about sympathy. It's not about compassion. Those are often side effects of empathy. What happens with empathy in the beginning, first step, and the way we talk about it with our clients is we want people to practice cognitive empathy, right? We don't necessarily need people to practice feeling how other people feel, which is a different form of empathy. It's, it's called effective empathy, right? So for example, if, I, if you told me you were sad, and then I wanted to have, a, and I was operating with effective empathy, I would say, well, I know what it feels like to feel sad too. I've felt sad in my life. And here's what I would want someone to do for me if I felt that way. And then I would reciprocate and I would give you that feeling, right? If it, I would you know, comfort you or I would take you for a walk or I would ask you to you know, tell me what's wrong, right? I would, we would have a relationship based on my experience of the emotion. And that is... A form of empathy, but that's actually not the empathy that, that we try to practice with organizations because that starts to bring a lot of your own personal bias and a lot of your own personal experience into the room too quickly. And it's okay if it gets there, but actually where we, where we say organizations should start is with something called cognitive empathy. And cognitive empathy is really about perspective taking, right? This is about stepping out of your own shoes seeing the world from a different perspective, learning deeply about that perspective, understanding what makes them tick, why this is important to them, what the dynamics are that surround those relationships in their lives, whatever it might be, and then taking that deeper understanding and bringing it back into your decision-making process or your leadership style or whatever it is in order to help move, uh, move the business or the relationship forward. 
And so perspective taking might tell you to do something that is uh, similar to the way you would treat someone else. It might not. You know, the, ultimately, the idea of cognitive empathy is that your own bias should not play a role in the perspective taking. You should just simply get out of your own shoes and learn something about someone else and then bring that insight back into your decision making process. And so for me, when you think about a city like New York and the complexity and the cutthroat nature of running a business in a city like this, the businesses that are the most successful are the ones that are also aware of what else is going on around them, right? They're the ones that understand what trends they should be paying attention to and which ones they shouldn't. They know which competitors they should be paying attention to and why and which ones they shouldn't. They know what their employees need and what their employees don't need. They're perspective taking all the time and they're adjusting the dials on their business accordingly. And that's really the, the, the sort of pace and speed we want to get people to comfort, uh, comfortably work within so that they can adjust their business as the world changes. Michael, I'd love to, to chat more about, you know, your book, Applied Empathy, you were talking about, um, you know, the book's title is Applied Empathy, but you were talking about cognitive empathy. And then what was the other one you mentioned? Affective empathy. Okay. Are, what are the other, are there other types of empathy? There's a third one that comes up a lot, which is somatic empathy. So that's something where you actually physically feel the emotions of someone else. So like think of when sometimes uh, a spouse or a partner is uh, going through um, pregnancy. Some people will have uh, sympathy pains, they've been called in the past. Um, that's, that's an example of somatic empathy, right? Where you're feeling the pain of someone else or you're feeling the feelings of someone else. Got it. So all three of those, affective, cognitive, and somatic, are different ways empathy shows up in the world. Applied empathy, which is our approach, is grounded in working from a cognitive place first, but ultimately leading you into those other forms of empathy too, if necessary, right? Our belief is that empathy unto itself is passive. So I could have a lot of understanding for you, right? Let's say you and I spent another two hours on this phone call and we asked each other a bunch of questions and I really got to know you. Mm -hmm. I could get to know you exceedingly well, but then do nothing with that understanding, right? So inherently the understanding itself is neutral. It is only in the application of it that mm -hmm. we can affect change, right? So what am I going to do with that understanding? Is that going to make me a better friend to you? Does it mean that we're going to have deeper conversations in the future? Does that mean that we're going to spend more time together? Whatever it is, right? That's in the application of that understanding. Got it. So one of the things we really focus on with this work is not just taking perspective, but then deciding what the right actions are that are to follow. Where did this concept come from you? Because it sounds like, you know, I imagine over years of growing a business and being an entrepreneur, it came through practice. But I'm, I'm curious where it, it started to manifest for you. Sure. So I would say about five years ago, we, as an organization, were talking about where is our secret weapon? Like, what is our special sauce? What is the thing that makes us great at what we do? And we didn't have a great answer. I think a lot of us had an intuition that there were some things we were doing that were differentiated and unique, but we didn't know exactly what it was. And so we made a commitment to become our own best client. And we built a project team and we went back over a decade's worth of work and we looked at what are our favorite projects and why were they so good. We looked at our bad projects and we said, what made these projects fail? And what we kept coming around to on both was when we were using empathy and truly perspective taking and using that insight effectively, 
we were successful. And when we didn't do that, our projects were not as effective. And so we came around to this idea and said, okay, if empathy is really at the core of what we do, what's the process we can go through to start to habitualize that, to start to make that understandable? Because for some people that might be very natural, but let's say we make five new hires in the next quarter, how are those new people going to drop right in? We need to give them a process. And so we started to create that process. And then out of that applied empathy was really born. So, so can you take us through that process just a little bit more? Because I'm curious, um, you know, I think about that too when I have clients. A friend of mine said once, he said, um, design the perfect pro- product or the perfect service for your client. And then it got me thinking, okay, what's going through their mind? What's going through their brain? What, what are they doing on a daily basis? How can I really serve those people? So um, when you go through this process, when you, your company has a new client, or maybe when you just started off using this process, what were the thoughts and the questions that you asked yourself to make sure that you are in the shoes and understanding, understanding their point of view from an empathetic way? Yeah. So the first step in the process for us is about what we call exploration. And we do that in three different vectors or buckets, if you will. One is for the company, one is for consumers, and one is for context. So three C's, imagine them like a, like a Venn diagram, right? So there's going to be some overlap in the center where all three of them collide. But when we say company, what we want to know is what is everything there is to know about the client organization, right? Who, who works there? What do they make? What are their values? Why were they founded? What's their mission statement? You know, all of those things that make a company what it is. And we'll take all that data and we'll bring it into the conversation. When we go to consumers, we're, we don't just mean end consumer. We mean who are all of the people who consume information from this organization? So that might very well mean end consumers. Usually that means that there's a subset or a, sub, <clears throat> a, a, a subcategorization of a variety of, of consumers inside that, right? So you might say uh, this targets um, millennials. Well, then within millennials, there's female millennials. There's, uh, you know, there's, there's probably a whole host of, you know, 10, 15 subs, subcategories that you could even derive, right? So right. what do all of those want from the brand and the business? But then we think about, what about the B2B partners? What about shareholders? What about the media? You know, and, and prospective employees. And all of these types of things start to then give us different angles on the business, right? The way I might talk to a reporter from the Financial Times is going to be different than the way I talk to a reporter from BuzzFeed, right? They, they both might care about some things that are the same, but by and large, they're reporting for different audiences. So they're going to have different interests in what they want to talk to a business about. And so knowing all of that and really building a consumer map of who are all of the people who are going to consume this information and what do they value? What matters to them? And then the third C is the context. And this is inclusive of a couple things. Who are your direct competitors? Who are the people that we care about in in the category? Who are your indirect competitors? So these aren't people that are necessarily making the same thing as you, but that are vying for the same sort of attention in the minds and the hearts of the people you serve. So I was with a furniture brand recently and we were talking about this and they're trying to grow their business from a $1 billion business to a $2 billion business. And I said, well, who keeps you up at night? And the CEO told me five other furniture brands. 
Hmm. And I said, well, those were the ones that you had to learn how to beat to get to this point. But what about, what about Sonos? And he said, well, Sonos doesn't make what we make. And I said, I know, but think about the consumer you're trying to target. They're not coming home and having a conversation about, should we buy this couch, this couch, or this couch? They're saying we have a budget and we're trying to make our house more like a home. And so we might buy a new couch. We might buy a new Sonos sound system. We might do a meal delivery kit system because we want to cook at home more. You know, there's a whole, we might save uh, because we're looking to buy a second house. You know, there are a lot of other things you're competing with. It's not just furniture brands anymore, right? So that's the context. That's the stuff that's happening in the indirect space. And then the third aspect of the context is also what's happening in the zeitgeist, what's happening in the world around us. What, what sort of trends should we be paying attention to and how are those going to influence our decision-making? So once you have those three vectors, company, consumer, and context fully mapped out, then you overlay them on top of each other and see where the, where the strongest points of overlap are, where are the themes that keep emerging. And then really zeroing in on those is really the first step in our process. So what I liked also about uh, your, your, in your book, which you wrote, is that uh, if you want to uh, change the world, you have to educate them uh, you know, at the seed level. So, and there is at this moment no formal education on empathy, um, like some, right. some, some religions or it depends of, of uh, who your parents are, you know, you will have more or less, but like formal edu education, like math or, or any other, the, I didn't, you couldn't find it uh, these days. So um, imagine I'm, I'm a parent and I'm listening to this podcast and uh, I'm thinking, yeah, my school doesn't give formal education. I'm not going to convince them. How can I train my child so when he's an entrepreneur, he at least have that covered? Like, what, what, do you, what would you advise now a parent that is, that is listening to it? Mm -hmm. I think one of the first skills, and this is something that we talk about with every organization we work with, is how do you start to train the muscle for self-observation, right? How do you observe the things about yourself that you might unconsciously be ignoring, right? So we've developed a whole set of quote unquote selves that you can look at your physical self, your emotional self, your intellectual self, your aspirational self. There's a whole bunch of them that we've mapped out in the book. And what we do is we start to talk to people about how aware are you with these of these different aspects of yourself. So I'll give you an example. I was with an organization recently and had 200 people in a room and I asked them to all close their eyes and raise their hand to think about what is the most common emotion they feel when they come to work every day. So everyone eyes closed thinks about one emotion that they feel. And I said, okay, keep your eyes closed, raise your hand. If that's a negative emotion, if it's an emotion you don't want to feel every day and 90% of the room raised their hands. Wow. And I said, keep your hands up and now open your eyes. And they looked around and people got, teary-eyed people started to cry because what they realized was they weren't alone and that other people feel this way too and that if they're going to do something to change the way they feel they have to work together and that there was a common goal because everyone felt this way and so that act of self-observation actually taught them a really valuable lesson about other people too about how what i've been feeling is not just what about me other people are feeling this way too and we need to work together if we want to change it, right? So one of the early steps in the process is training the muscle of self-observation, of being able to observe how your interior self is operating. And in doing that, and you start to have a sense of empathy for yourself and your own state of being, 
that makes it so much easier to then do that for someone else. If you start with someone else, then you start just taking perspective of all the people around you. You're ignoring the person who you're going to spend the most amount of time with in your life, which is yourself. So use yourself as an opportunity to test and practice every day. I'm, I'm curious real quick, when people raise their hand about the negative emotions that they feel, is there a common theme on what that negative emotion is? Um, I think every organization is different. In that organization in particular, it was, uh, it was really revolving around the idea of um, carrying the, the emotional burden for a lot of other people that they serve. It happened to be a, uh, a memorial. A, um, it was an organization that is a big, um, I'm trying to respect the confidentiality, but give you, the, give you the, the point of it, which was they are a space that holds space for many people who are grieving. Okay. And so one of the things that they realized is they weren't giving their employees the right tools and resources to rest and recover from providing that for so many other people. So wow. they were they were being very helpful and supportive for the the guests who come to their space to grieve and to process emotion, but they weren't putting that work into themselves. So imagine like I have a child and he's 12 years old, you know, and, and I see his personality that he's gonna be an achiever and he's gonna go get there. And you know, sometimes when we go full power, especially if you're 18, 19, 20, at the beginning of our lives, you know, we, we, we forget actually to look around us and to, 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 you know, to help the people also around us. So, and to be empathic with them. So how, how is it like a game or, or a specific sport or, or a mind training that you think, oh, you know what, if you do this, if you do X, Y, Z, you, you, your empathic muscle will mm, not be underdeveloped. Yeah. Um, well, one of the things that we do a lot is we've developed a bunch of questions. We have uh, these questions that spur deeper, more provocative uh, conversation than what traditional small talk would yield, right? So, you know, we could, we could have a, a very superficial conversation where we talk about, you know, things that are benign and on the surface and, and probably never get to know each other much. But, you know, those aren't going to ultimately lead us to deeper understanding. So we created this deck of cards that um, they're also uh, all the questions are in the book, too. But um, we created this deck of cards called uh, Q&D, Questions and Empathy. And, um, and they have questions that are questions most people don't normally ask particularly strangers, but sometimes even their, their friends and family. So I have a deck on, on my desk here. I'll just read a couple of the questions. What are the biggest sacrifices you've made in your life? How do you build trust? When are you the most observant? When is failure productive? How do you build endurance? So you start to see these are the types of questions that one sentence answers don't get at, right? These are, these are four, five, six, seven, eight minute long answers for some people. And if, and if they aren't, then they, they should be, right? So you as the question asker, might get a quick two, three sentence answer back from someone because they're uncomfortable about going deeper. But that's the point. So when they stop after those couple questions, after those couple sentences, it's incumbent upon you as the question asker to ask a follow up. When did that first start for you? Why do you think you feel that way? And then all of a sudden, people start to open up more, and they start to share more about themselves. And so the hardest thing about that is asking the tough question. 
right? Because we aren't always comfortable asking tough questions, especially of strangers. So the cards give you permission to do that. The cards are going to ask the hard question. It's not you asking it. You're playing a game. And, the, and so all of a sudden, all the pressure's off. Yeah. The card's going to do the hard thing. You just have to ask the follow-ups. They sound like there's something that, that could really be used also, like sitting around the house or in relationships, because I think uh, we forget to ask those questions. I know when I go home for the holidays, we have this book at my parents' house. It's like, it's called If. Like, if you were stranded on a desert island, who would you want to save you? Or if you had to relive your life, what are some of the things that you, you know, would do over? And, but asking those hard, and it makes it fun and easy. Like, you're right, a game. And I even think, like, I don't know, do you know couples or families that have those cards sitting around your, their house that they use Absolutely. Them? Yeah, yeah, I mean, people, people use them in social settings. We've gotten notes from a lot of people who, you know, host dinner parties and give everyone a card on their plate when they get yeah. seated and say, at some point in the night, ask someone this question. Um, we know teachers who are using them in classes with students to help oh, yeah. students get to know each other better. So yeah, it's, it's, it's something that certainly can exist in a whole uh, host of, of ways and means. Yeah, could you imagine like in, even in having these questions, teachers ask these questions in elementary schools, like kids growing up with the ability to answer and ask questions like that, that would, I think that would make a huge difference and if that was a common thing in education absolutely and um but yeah one of the things that was interesting about the cards was we used them we taught for three semesters a class called applied empathy at princeton university and we used these cards and uh and the students really latched onto them as a way to go deeper and learn about themselves uh, fast forward a few years later we were invited to west point which is the military academy in the united states and we were invited there to teach cadets and career military people about how to use empathy in leadership. And the cards were- That is were, awesome. Yeah, it was amazing. And the cards worked just as well there, you know? So you think about superficially, those probably couldn't seem like more different academic environments. Right. However, I will say everything I had preconceived to uh, imagine the West Point experience to be like was disproven within five minutes. Wow. Those students were so interested in empathy and so passionate about how it can help them be better leaders. And I asked them at some point during that conversation, why is this so important to you? And they all kind of had the same answer. They said, look, this is a leadership academy. We all graduate and are responsible for 40 people from the moment we leave here. And that's all, that number is only going to increase as we spend time in the military. And it's only going to increase as we grow in our careers outside of the military. And we know and believe that empathy is a powerful leadership skill. And the leaders that have empathy are better leaders. And so we want to be the best leaders we can be. And I thought that was so amazing to hear that, that that was a, such a, such a self-aware perspective to have. And that sounds like an answer you would hear from like a monk in Tibet or something like yeah. that. Yeah, it's exactly. Like, <laughs> yeah. Well, what about their like their superiors, like the 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 generals and the? How did they look at it? Like, were they were they behind this idea or? Yeah, they were the ones that asked for it. But what was interesting is I was really? sat I was sitting one morning with the superintendent of the school, career military guy, right? Um, has been in the military his whole life, three star general, and I asked him why am I here? 
like, why do you think this is a good idea? I, I mean, I think it's a good idea, but I just want to know what you think. And he said, similar to what the students said, but then he added something else. He said, you know, in addition to it just being a very important leadership skill, we are a military governed and operated by civilians. He goes, we don't decide to go to war. We don't decide to deploy our troops. Congress does. And Congress is a completely different governmental body. And if we aren't able to understand them and to understand how they think and why they are making decisions, then we're just blindly following direction. He said, we need to be able to perspective take if we're going to have an opinion on where we're going and what we're doing and what's right to save lives and to get people home fast. I thought that was a really inspired way of thinking about it. Yeah, you will not expect it to be honest with you. Like, like the media doesn't no. show that that face of uh, of, the, of West Point. No, certainly not. And and I I am the most guilty of that bias. I mean, I went there saying to myself, "This is going to be really difficult," <laughs> and I left feeling like I was among my people, and I was talking with folks who really understood the value of this. I think that's such a powerful testimonial because, you know, a lot of people would put empathy even in the, the so-called so-called woo-woo category, yep. you know, because the hard-nosed business people, hard-nosed military people, of course, what are they going to do with empathy, you know? But it's, it, it's a great testimonial because here you have the novice um, leader, military leaders of the United States of tomorrow and their generals are saying, you need to learn about empathy. And most people would say, like, really? You know, just like all of us did. And and then there it is. It really shows you the power of it because it's um it's an incredible power to to know and to understand empathy and, and not like you could ever fully understand it, but to grow and to, to make it a continual practice. I'm curious, Michael, like it, it you know, you've applied empathy, applied empathy, no pun intended, um, <laughs> your, you know, for years now, how do you continue to use that practice? Yeah, it is, as you've said, a practice, right? It's a muscle you train. Mm -hmm. And so we, every single day on every single piece of work we're doing, are using this methodology, are doing workshops with clients, are learning how to do it more uh, effectively, you know, figuring out different ways of gaining insight or perspective through research, through ethnographic uh, research, whatever it might be. So I think one of the big things I've learned in the past few years of, of doing this work intensely is that the repetition breeds a sort of... Uh, somaticizing or sixth sensing of this where it just starts to become second nature right it starts to just become uh your your standard operating system and uh and it does take time to get there and i i tell people this all the time when i give talks empathy will slow things down before it speeds them up mm. empathy will make you frustrated because you're not going to want to, if you're like most people, you're not going to want to take those extra 15 minutes at the end of the meeting when you want to get on to the next thing. Yeah. Those extra 15 minutes are what will give you the deeper understanding sometimes that you need in order to make the right choice. You're not going to want to have the hard conversation with your colleague. But if you don't do it, 
you're not going to share perspective. You're not going to get to that place where you understand each other's point of view to such a degree that you can make a better informed choice, right? So it will slow things down and, and it will have a, um, a, uh, uh, entropic kind of effect to some degree, but then you will have a spike. And, and I can't tell you when it'll happen, but it will happen at some point in practicing it where everything speeds up and like the lights come on bright again. And you're like, oh, okay, here, we're here, we're doing it, it's happening. Um, and for every organization that happens at a different pace, but once it does happen, then everything, then all that hard work pays off. Let's, let's talk about influence now. Uh, we're interviewing hundred major influencers, and I think we've done 20, 25 or so. And uh, we're talking to a lot of people that have powerful and incredible amount of influence in their niches, their businesses, their, their, their worlds. And um, it's interesting, interesting to see because, you know, uh, somebody can have influence and they, they're not conscious of how to use that in a constructive way. And it can um, really create some some damaging results. So, um, using empathy and with the influence that you have gotten, um, what would you say is how do those two things overlap for you in a regular day to day um, business environment? The they specifically to me conjure up the aspect of applied, right? It's less about the empathy. It's about how you're applying that understanding that will create either positive or negative influence in the world. And so this goes to the earlier point about the three types of empathy, right? Effective empathy is largely probably 99% of the time going to have a positive effect, right? Because no one's going to say, I don't want to be treated well, right? So when you sympathize, when you empathize with someone else, you may return with sympathy, right? Because that's how you would have wanted to get that. That might be the emotion you were seeking when you once felt that way too, or whatever it is. Somatic empathy, you're going to feel whatever someone else feels. And so in, inherent in that, you, you've got, you're kind of, you're on the same page towards getting better together. But the cognitive empathy one, this is where when I said earlier about it being neutral is really important. So an example I've, get, I've been giving and, and it ruffles people's feathers sometimes when they hear this because they don't think of empathy this way is I bring up Cambridge Analytica and what they did in the last election. Could you, can and, you uh, outline that for the- Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so Cambridge Analytica was a, a big data company that was scraping social media accounts and developing profiles on consumers and their behaviors and their content consumption. And then they were able to, as paid for by, uh, from some nefarious sources, um, they were able to manipulate the news cycle and the news information that was being served to those consumers in order to influence their voting behavior in the 20, in the, in the last election here in the States. And so, um, what they were doing was essentially practicing a form of negatively influenced application of empathy, right? They had a deep perspective, a cognitive perspective, and a cognitive understanding of a set of people, and they fed them misinformation in order to alter their behaviors, mm-hmm. right? That's a terrible use of empathy, but it's still was cognitive empathy, right? Sociopaths are great cognitive empaths 
right? They have to understand you in order to manipulate you, right? That, that cognitive empathy informs their manipulation choices, right? So I'm not saying we, we want to build any more sociopaths or Cambridge Analytica's in the world, quite the opposite, but the point is that it is in the application where influence occurs. And so we as practitioners have a responsibility to the insight we're garnering and the perspective we're taking to have a set of moral and ethical guidelines around that so that we're going to use it for positive aims, positive means, positive gains. What we don't want is to breed people who are going to take that and use it for purely selfish or manipulative reasons, yeah. right? And so that's where um, morality, and I, and I use that word carefully, comes into play. Everyone's morals are different, I realize that. But um, you know, there's, a, there's a great organization here in the States called the Center for Humane Technology and they're looking at ways that morality and ethics will be built into artificial intelligence because artificial intelligence will be much like Cambridge Analytica was gathering deep insight. Mm. And then what is it going to do with that deep insight? Mm. And we need to build parameters around it that operate with ethics. I love that. Maybe something that's not super relevant, but I'm really curious uh, about uh, you, uh, Michael is um, you have a, also a health um, advice, um, maybe it's an understatement that is a health advice, but it's called the Corvus Medicine. And, and, and that, that, did, did that knowledge had effect uh, on your business? Um, yeah, to some degree. So Corvus is something that I uh, have been working on for about 10 years. It hasn't always been called that, but it's an alternative medicine practice that works in uh, a form of Chinese medicine called qigong. Qi, you've probably heard before, life force, right? <clears throat> Gong is about circulation or movement, so about moving the life force around the body to open up any blockages or any trauma. And, uh, and then another practice, which comes from an indigenous culture in Mexico, and that practice is, uh, they're known as limpias. Limpia is a Spanish word for washing or cleaning. Right. And so in both of these traditions, what I realized when I was studying with practitioners from both a, a traditional Chinese master, uh, Chinese medicine and Qigong master uh, and a curandera, a female shaman from Mexico. Right. Both of my teachers who I spent years under the tutelage of. I had taken perspective. I had really applied empathy in both of these instances to go into their worlds, right? Because neither of these were traditions that I was born in. Neither of these were traditions I was raised in, but I needed to really immerse myself in them in order to understand them. And what was amazing was when I did, I realized the interconnectivity between the two. Because at the end of the day, our bodies are our bodies, our spirits are our spirits, our minds are our minds, right? And so they may have different ways of talking about it. They may have different frameworks they use to work on it. But at the end of the day, the belief system that underlined both of these traditional modalities for helping people to heal were the same. And it showed me how in the practice of empathy, that if we go deep enough, certain truths will always emerge. Right? Certain things about humanity, about our existence, about our way of being will always start to be reinforced. And, uh, and I believe that if more people are doing that, the things that superficially make us different will start to become 
a lot easier to let go of because the things that make us the same will become much more obvious for all of us. It's powerful. Awesome. Awesome. I think a lot of entrepreneurs um, can, can learn from that by uh, integrating like this, this, this logical and empathic brain uh, together. So thank you very much for sharing that, uh, Michael. Thank you. Yeah, of course. Thank you for asking. I think we're going to wrap up there, guys. Um, Michael, if the listeners want to reach out and learn more about what you've got going on or where they could find the book, where's the best place they could do that at? Appliedempathy.com. Easy enough. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we tried to make it as, as foolproof as possible. That's what I liked about your website. I, I noticed it was very, um, I, I guess you could say foolproof, and I love that because it's easy as entrepreneurs to get overwhelmed with all these ideas and directions we can take people and that sort of thing. So um, your design is great. Um, and also, I want to thank you for coming on the show and sharing all your tips and tricks and wisdom. We're going to wrap up there, and uh, we'll put all the links in the show notes. Michael, again, thank you. Uh, is there anything else you'd like to sh like to share before we sign off? Uh, just to say thank you to both of you. I know that this is um, uh, an ongoing project and I appreciate the, the commitment you have to s surfacing these stories and sharing them with your community. Thank so, you, Michael. Yeah, we appreciate it. Thank you very much. And uh, we'll wrap up there, you guys. Listeners, thank you guys for tuning in once again. And we'll see you all on the next episode. Goodbye, everybody. Bye-bye. Hey listeners, thanks for joining us once again. We wanted to remind you about our high performance productivity coaching and our five, six, seven, and eight figure private masterminds. These are all designed for entrepreneurs by entrepreneurs to help you scale rapidly and grow. Check out all the details at thebusinessmethod.com. That's thebusinessmethod.com. And we'll see you all on the next episode.